Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke uh, chapter 22, verses 39 through 42. And if you'd like to, you can follow along in your pew Bible on page 858. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Well, we are pleased to have with us in worship today the Eagle String Quartet. These are students from the Colonial Forge High School's orchestra program, along with Miss Debbie Tripp, who is their um, orchestra director and advisor and also a member of Ebenezer Church. So I invite you to join me in welcoming them in encouragement as they perform for us Johann Sebastian Bach's Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring.
Thank you. That was lovely. And that song and a little bit of the history behind Bach and some of his compositions will serve as uh, pretty much our main sermon illustration today. Now, if that hymn, if that song sounded familiar to you, that is because it is one of the most popular wedding hymns of all time. And this is a hymn that brides choose not just for any part of their wedding, but for the song that they walk down the aisle to. The song that they walk down the aisle to, leaving one life behind and beginning a new life and a new journey. The hymn, Yezu, Joy of Man's Desiring. In English, it could be roughly translated to Jesus, in whom we will find the joy in our desires. Most popular wedding hymn. Now, this is interesting to me because there are many images that Jesus, um, that Jesus and Paul give in the New Testament for the church. And one of those images is that the church is the bride of Christ, that we together are Jesus's bride. And so thinking about the song and the scripture, it made me think that we are called and invited to walk down the aisles of our own lives be them the aisles and the halls of our workplaces or from room to room in our homes or even down the streets in our neighborhood. We are called to walk down those aisles remembering that it is in Jesus that we will find the joy of our desires. Now, I'm not sure that many about-to-be-wed couples are thinking about Jesus in this way as they are um, embarking on this new journey together. But this hymn remains one of the most popular wedding songs of all times. So I have to believe that God is at work in and through this music, reminding us all, maybe even when it's the furthest thing from our mind, where the joy and our desires are to be found. I think it's fair for us to say that Johann Sebastian Bach was to classical music what the likes of Sir Isaac Newton was to physics. They changed the course of history. They altered the landscape through their work and their contributions in their particular fields. There is something otherworldly about Bach's ability to touch the human soul with his music. And if we dig just a teeny bit beneath the surface, I think that we will discover at least one reason for why that is. Bach's work includes 256 cantatas, but they didn't start out as music. His compositions were something else before they became music. Very often, Bach's works were prayers before he put them to music. You see, before he started writing anything at all, before he put the pen to the paper to begin working, he would write something up on the corner of each and every paper. He would write, J.J. Jesu Yuva is Latin for Jesus, help me. He would write that before he started working. A simple and a powerful prayer that helped him to be, rem- to, to be reminded that he needs Jesus' help, that he desires Jesus' help, and that essentially he is working for the Lord. And then at the completion of each and every work, he would write something else in the margins of the paper. He would scribble the letters S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, 
to the glory of God alone. He was celebrating each piece. He dedicated each piece to God alone. This helped him to remember who he was in God's eyes. I believe that him doing this simple prayer on each sheet, Jesus, help me. And then him dedicating each and every piece to the glory of God alone. I believe that that was an act of worship for him. Acknowledging where his gifts came from and who he was using them for. And I also believe that it was an act of discipline or discipleship. It kept him humble. It kept him focused. And it's no wonder then that his music is so powerful. It's no wonder that he touches our soul. He knew who he was in God's eyes and he knew where his gifts came from and he knew who he was trying to please in his work. His desire was to please not only God, but God alone. And so as we enter week three, our final week in this all-in sermon series, our first week we talked about going all-in for God. The second week we talked about going all-out for God. And today we're going to be talking about why we would even want to do those things. Why do we go in and all-out? And we're going to be reminded today that God in Christ is our all-in-all. That God is our everything. That God desires all of us. And as an act of worship, we are invited to give back and to use those gifts that God has given us for the glory of God alone. And so as we enter this final week in this short sermon series, I invite you to think about your own life, about who you're working for, about what your motivations are, What are the desires of your heart? Who are you trying to please? Who or what are you trying to glorify? Many of us, I think, have been raised and conditioned to separate our religious life from our work life. We have been raised and conditioned to separate the God things from those other things in the real world. We have been raised and conditioned to separate who we are on Sunday mornings from who we are on Monday through Saturday. And we have been raised and conditioned to dial down and dial back the gospel truth that God is asking for all of us, for every part of us. That is what God desires as our true act of worship. I have to tell you, I truly believe that all of this trying to separate the parts of our life out into different pieces and this trying to compartmentalize our very identity, the identity that we have been given in Christ, we try to piece it out and compartmentalize it. I truly believe that this is an exhausting endeavor. I think it's exhausting us as people. I think it's exhausting us as, as a church, not just here, but around the developed world. But I think also that there's some good news. I think that in our exhaustion of trying to be different people to different places in the world and trying to please everyone else besides Jesus, 
I think that in that exhaustion, we have just about exhausted the time in history where God is going to allow us to compartmentalize our identities any longer. We are living in interesting times. There are seismic shifts happening around the global church and around the world. And we're living through it. God didn't design us to be Sunday morning Christians. God gave us his word and his spirit so that we could be all in Christians who go all out. Because we recognize that Jesus is our all and all. God wants us to be in our identity, rooted in him, in every place we find ourselves, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our communities, in the grocery store, when we're sitting in traffic. God wants our identity to be rooted in Christ alone. And I believe we are living in times where we are going to be called to the test See, for Bach, there was no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Bach recognized that everything he had been given comes from God, that all things were created by God and for God. And so if God had given Bach the ability to write and to compose and to create beautiful music, he was going to do it all for the glory of God. And as members of the church of Jesus Christ, you have all been given gifts from the Holy Spirit. You all possess natural talents and abilities. And together, as God's church, God wants us to be using those gifts and those talents and those resources and those relationships and those contacts and connections for the glory of God alone. God wants us to bridge any divides that exist in our lives between the sacred and the secular because we're meant to have only one identity, and that is an identity rooted in Christ. The gospel truth, what we profess and confess when we come up here and we take our baptismal vows, what we are saying when we do that is that Jesus is either Lord of all or that he is Lord of nothing at all. Our baptismal covenant is when we say we are willing to die to ourselves so that we can rise with Christ, that we are willing to put to death our old selves so that a new self in Christ can be born. God wants to rebirth and regenerate and repurpose every single part of us. Jesus is either Lord of all or he is Lord of nothing at all. Now we're going to dive into our scripture passage today for a little bit, and it's found in Luke 22. But just to orient you to the mood of this passage, I want to tell you uh, where this is located in scripture. Our passage is, um, uh, the subtitle is Jesus Prays on the Mount of Olives. That is found after we are told that, quote, Satan entered Judas and convinced him to betray Jesus. It's found after the Passover feast, when Jesus celebrated what has become known to us as the Last Supper, when Jesus repurposed the bread and the cup and told the disciples that he is the bread of life and that this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for them and for the sins of the world. The passage is found after when Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times. 
And it's found directly before Jesus is arrested. That's the passage that we're in today. And I tell you that just because I want you to know that it's a heavy passage. The mood is heavy. It's somber. And we witness something in the passage today that I want to point out as well. I think that other than the words that Jesus speaks on the cross when he says, Father, or my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? I think that the passage that we are in today is one of the few other times where we see the full humanity of Jesus on display. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And in today's passage, we get a glimpse of how human Jesus began to process what God's will was for his life. So if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to page 858. Uh, We're going to be in Luke 22. And the main heading for this passage is Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Can you say with me, Jesus prays? Jesus prays. Can you say that again? Jesus prays. Now, I don't know if when you hear that, it kind of trips you up a little bit. But when I hear it, it makes me think, okay, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus prays. Praying seems like such a human act, things that we do. But Scripture witnesses time and time again that Jesus prayed. Jesus removed himself from the busyness and from the crowds. And he went off to be alone with God. And he prayed while he was alone. He also prayed in the company of his friends. He prayed with crowds. He prayed outside. He prayed in the temple. It is noteworthy that Jesus prayed. Praying is a two-way communication. Oftentimes, we're focusing on us talking to God. Jesus gives us the example of someone who speaks to God, who is speaking to God the Father, but then also listening for God, expecting a response almost. Jesus' prayer life helped to ground him. It helped to reassure him, and it helped him be connected to the will of God the Father. And if we want to be all-in Christians who are all out because Jesus is our all-in-all, then we, I think it's safe to say, if prayer was part of Jesus' disciplines and life and walk, that prayer will be part of ours as well. Sometimes we are called to pray for our neighbors. Sometimes we're called to pray with our family. Sometimes we're called to pray for a coworker. Sometimes we're called to pray for a family member. Sometimes we pray in our small group settings or our Bible studies. Sometimes we don't want to pray. We feel uncertain about how to pray. We're not sure we have the right words. But the gospel shows us that Jesus prayed, and if we want to be all in Christians, then prayer will be a part of our life, alone and with others. And there is no one way to get this right. There's no real magic formula. It is a conversation where we're speaking to God and we're listening for God. And it connects us and it reminds us and it empowers us and it assures us that we are not alone. Now, Jesus' prayers in our passage today are focused and they are humble. And like I said earlier, they are very human. If we look at verse 40, the very first thing we see happening in this passage is Jesus directing the disciples to pray. 
He's directing them to pray for something very specific in this passage. The first thing we see after the Passover, after Jesus predicts that that Peter's going to deny him, right before he's arrested, the thing that was most pressing on Jesus' mind that he wanted to share with his disciples, that he had to share, is that the disciples needed to pray, and they needed to pray that they would not enter the time of temptation. Jesus tells the disciples, pray that you will not enter the time of trial and temptation. That was the most important thing on Jesus' mind for his disciples. Jesus knows the power of prayer, but Jesus also knows the power of the evil one, the tempter. We're told in scripture that after Jesus' baptism that the spirit drives him out into the wilderness. The spirit drives him out there. And in week one of this sermon series, Pastor Rob remind us, reminded us that Jesus does not do the tempting, or God doesn't do the tempting. That's not um, how we understand God. But Jesus was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he was tempted and sifted and, tr- and put on trial, essentially. And he stood firm because he is the only human ever to remain sinless and blameless. He's the only human ever that will be, hum- that, that will be sinless and blameless. We can't miss the importance of this passage. Right before Jesus was arrested, the most important thing he could tell his disciples was, you need to pray. Get down on your hands and your knees. Get down and pray that you will not come into temptation. He didn't ask. He could have asked them to pray for his own health, for his prosperity, for his safety. That 2,000 years later, people would build big church buildings in his name. He could have asked that they pray for their own safety, their prosperity. That is not what he thought was most important. He says, you need to pray that you will not come into the time of trial and temptation. Now, here's the truth. When we decide that Jesus really is our all in all, when we decide that we are willing to go all in and all out for Christ, Satan and his minions will come for you. They will. And I'm not talking about like scary movie stuff in the dark of your house. Like, no. I'm talking about cowardly antics. Satan will come for where you're weak. He will come for your vulnerabilities. He will come for those areas of your life that you don't want anyone else to know about. He will kick you when you're down because he's a coward. He'll come for your past traumas and your past hurts. He will want you to stay in shame and in darkness. And that is going to happen when you follow Christ. That is why this is so important. Jesus knew that that if there's one thing he wanted to communicate right now, it is this. Pray that you will not come into this time. Boom. This is the first part of the sandwich. This is what he's telling them. If we want to be all in, all out Christians, we too need to pray that we will not come into the time of trial and temptation. Satan does not want God to be at work in and through you. Because you know what? When you realize that all of your sin and all of your shame has been nailed to that cross, all of it, that it's not there anymore, you will begin to live completely free. You will begin to understand that your freedom has been bought, that it doesn't come from anything that you have done, and there's nothing that you can do to lose the gift that God has given you. And because of that, you will want to share that light and that truth and that grace and that hope with everyone. And if there is something that the evil one does not want, It's a people full of hope and purpose and grace and truth sharing that with those they encounter. It is that important. That's the first part. 
Now, after Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they don't come into the time of temptation, the next thing that we see is a very human Jesus. We see a Jesus on the ground sweating tears as heavy as blood and asking God, God, please, God, take this cup from me. The cup is an Old Testament metaphor for suffering. Jesus knew that he was walking closer to the cross. He knew what was about to happen. And in his humanity said, God, please, if there's any other way, let it be so. But if not, but not my will, he goes on to say, not my will, your will be done. Jesus prays for God to take the cup from him, but not my will, God, not my will. If that's not your will, not my will. Your will alone be done. That is a scary and bold prayer. Are we willing to pray, God, not my will, but your will be done? Man, if, if we know what happened to the disciples when they followed Jesus, if we know what happened to the early church, if we know what happened to people like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., if we know what happened to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is a pretty bold prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. And then Jesus gets up and he goes to find the disciples who had fallen asleep. Because that's what we do as humans. We, we get distracted. We get tired. We need a snack. We're going to go home for a little bit. Take a nap. He finds them and he says, why are you sleeping? Basically, I told you, get up and again, Pray that you do not come into the time of temptation. He tells them that again. I want you to see something. We have a sandwich happening here. We have a prayer that says, pray that you will not come into the time of temptation. We have that at the bottom too. And right in the middle of that prayer is God's will. God's will exists sandwiched between the time of temptation, and the time of trial. And there's no getting around that in this passage. The most important thing Jesus wants us to know is that if we want to follow God and seek his will, then we better be praying for ourselves, for one another, for the church, for strength, for endurance, for hope. Are we willing to pray those kind of bold prayers? I think that the truth is that for many of us, myself included, we often think that we are following Jesus when instead we have invited Jesus to follow us. I'll say, okay, well, I'm going to go over here, God, and this is where I'm going to be. So if there's anything over here in this little sphere that you want me to follow you in, I will be here waiting. But this passage is telling us really that these bold prayers will likely take us out of our little boxes to places of discomfort possibly to places of persecution, but where we will find the intersection of our life and God's will. Now, maybe we don't like to picture Jesus like he's pictured in this passage. He's on the ground in anguish, we're told. He is crying tears as thick as blood. He's asking God to please take the suffering away, and he needs to be strengthened by angels. Maybe we don't like to think of Jesus this way. And I think that we don't like to think of Jesus this way because it will force to think of ourselves in that way too. 
It will force to think of ourselves face down on the ground, praying for God to remove the burden for us from us, needing to be strengthened by angels. This passage is hard for us to grapple with, but it removes any doubt that we are that we are self-sufficient. This passage makes us come face to face with the fact that when we follow God's will, we will not be self-sufficient. We like to think that we are. We like to think that within ourselves, we have all of the power and resources to do everything that God has called us to do. But this passage makes us realize that that's just not the truth and that we are not self-sufficient and that God, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the exact opposite, that we are sufficient because Christ is sufficient. We are sufficient in Christ. What makes us right is Christ's righteousness. What makes us alive is Christ in us. That's the gospel. We don't like to picture this. We don't like to picture that there is a cosmic battle that is going on. That is the story of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. But the story is not done. Jesus' work on the cross was finished. The church wasn't birthed until after that fact. The church is intended to be God's set-apart vehicle in the world. We are the bride of Christ. We are also the body of Christ, with Jesus as our head. Jesus was all in for God. And Jesus prays, and he prays specifically, And he invites us to seek God's will. We're invited to follow his example. Now, we are living in incredibly interesting times, as I talked about earlier. If I was a betting person, and I'm not, because the Methodist Church does not allow gambling in any form, and so I had to put my Catholic identity to rest there. But if I, you know, my first job was in a bingo hall in eighth grade. There was beer and bingo and lots of smoke and that, but this is not the Catholic Church. So, but if, if I was, if I were a betting person, I would be willing to bet that Jesus is not going to allow us to be compartmentalized Christians for very much longer. All of these divisions that we have created, our Sunday morning selves, our work with selves, our God self, our secular self, our denominational self, um, whatever they might be, I would be willing to bet that we are entering the time when we will not be able to compartmentalize our identity. Um, Anglican Bishop Mark Dyer has said that every 500 years or so, the church holds a big rummage sale. So I want you to picture with me that every 500 years throughout the church's history, the spirit and the word are in the church's attic, going through stuff and throwing out what doesn't belong there anymore. So for the church was birthed at Pentecost. And then there we had a first 500-year period. And right around in the 6th century, um, the Roman Empire fell, and the church entered what is known as the monastic period. And there's different writings and teachings that came out of that period that then took what was good from before and moved forward. And that was around in the 500s. And then we went over here. And then in 1049 A.D., there was the, the Great Schism, the East-West Split. The Eastern Orthodox Church went this way, and, and the, the Holy Roman Church went this way. 500 years. 500 years later, the Protestant Reformation. 
That's where um, all the Protestant branches kind of burst out of that movement time, us included, um, as part of the Methodist Church. Protestant Church went this way. The Catholic Church kind of stayed where it was. You know where we're at again in history? We are right in the middle of another 500-year mark. We can feel it. We can sense things are shifting. Um, Old patterns of doing things don't work. We don't understand what's happening. But God is at work. The Word and the Spirit are at work creating the church for now and the future. You, You might be reading articles that talk about a church in decline and people not attending worship or millennials not interested in church or churches splitting over any number of different things. But that is only part of the story. The Spirit of God is at work connecting Christians around the globe in ways that we have never been able to be connected before. We can reach out to our brothers and sisters in any part of the world. I can read theology from Latin theologians and Asian theologians and and African theologians, and I can see what the church is doing in different parts of the world. And God is is orchestrating the shakeup. If history is any indication of what will happen then the church will will come out of this period renewed and revived, our attic clean, and a focus on why we are here and why that matters in the world today. That's where we're at. And the amazing part is that we all get to live through it. And God is looking for all-in, all-out Christians who recognize that Jesus is their all-in-all. At every part of this, those 500-year periods before, it was Christians who recognized that Jesus, above all else, above their denominations, above traditions, above anything that they had imported into the church, that it was Jesus who they needed to follow, and they were willing to do that to be able to see where God was leading and be part of it. And we are living in a period in time where we are invited to be those kind of Christians who will be, who will partner with God in creating the expression of the church that will be for us and for our kids and for our grandkids and for whatever God intends to use the church for. So as we wrap up this all-in series, my question for you is, do you desire to be an all-in Christian? Do you believe that Jesus is either Lord of all or Lord of nothing at all? What areas in your life do you need to submit to God's will? Are you willing to hand over your thought life, your speech life, your person who I am when no one's watching life, your community life, your family life, your prayer life? Are you willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, God? If so, then we need to pray. I will pray that you are not led into the time of trial and temptation. And I invite you to pray that same prayer um, for us, your church staff. I will pray that you will be bold enough to pray for God's will above your own in your life and that we can collectively pray God's will over our own for our church. I will pray for angels to strengthen you when you don't have strength to go on or to see the way forward, when you need to be picked back up and dusted off and reminded. And I invite you to pray the same thing. And I invite us all to remember in everything we do, in all spheres of our life, that to God alone belongs the glory. So help us, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.